You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Welcome, you're listening to Metamorphosis, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their medical careers. My name is Igor, and on today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Martin Gleave, who is one of our distinguished professors of urology here at UBC. Dr. Gleave, I'll let you introduce yourself as well. Hello, my name is Dr. Martin Gleave. I'm a professor and chairman at the uh, Department of Urologic Sciences at UBC and the director of the Vancouver Prostate Center. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Gleave. So uh, to start us off, I was hoping you can tell us a little bit about your current practice and what you kind of do on a daily basis. So I'm a um, urologic oncologist by training, did my residency in urology at UBC, followed by a three-year fellowship in uro-oncology, the MD Anderson Cancer Center, and my practice has remained subspecialized and really just focusing on management of um, uh, secondary and tertiary care uro-oncology, which is both a office or clinic-based practice where we diagnose and um, counsel and treat patients with prostate, bladder, uh, renal cell, penile, and testicular cancer with both systemic therapies as well as surgical therapies. Uh, so about two days a week of my time is spent surgically doing fairly uh, uh, major cancers like radical prostatectomies, cystoprostatectomies and urinary diversions, complex renal surgery, and, uh, and other types of abdominal surgery, including uh, uh, retroperitoneal lymph node dissections for testis cancer. So those are the main kind of large surgical procedures. Um, but in addition, we manage patients with superficial bladder cancer, with intravesical therapies, with systemic therapies for prostate cancer, um, and um, uh, occasionally certain immune therapies for renal cell carcinoma or for bladder cancer. And these are in close integration with our medical oncology colleagues who uh, will administer cytotoxic chemotherapies and other types of systemic therapies with more toxicity uh, where they require a different infrastructure than what we would have in a urology practice. So that's the clinical practice that I have. But in addition, I'm, I'm trained as a surgeon scientist. So 50% of my time is protected for research activities where I run a large research program um, that uh, focuses on the molecular mechanisms of treatment resistance in advanced cancer, in particular advanced prostate cancer. Um, and that involves managing my own research team, uh, which in, includes about 12 to 15 postdoctoral fellows, um, research associates, and other types of students um, uh, doing genomic and molecular testing analysis, experimental studies um, to help uh, understand uh, tumor biology uh, and why cancers escape our attempts to control them therapeutically. So essentially my practice is one that combines both 
the principles of experimental science uh, with the clinical applications and the treatment um, uh, regimens that um, uh, are um, recommended at the various stages of prostate cancer. So I'll pause there. I mean, there's a lot more that we can discuss in that regard, because I think one of the most interesting aspects of medicine as an applied science is that it's much more than just treating an individual. And, you know, medicine involves a lot of psychosocial supports. Um, but ultimately, if you look at it as applied biology, then we have to have a growing awareness of the advances in biology, microbiology, genomics, um, computational biology, to allow us to continue to uh, play a role at the forefront of how medicine is um, um, taking advantage of the advances in science so that we can play a role at uh, implementing those advances at the various stages of clinical development, um, mm -hmm. which is one of the areas that I'm most interested in, is understanding how we take uh, discoveries in um, reductionist science through to uh, testing in humans, away from model organisms in the lab to um, uh, using the human as a model organism. And that's uh, an area called treatment science. And that involves uh, clinical trials, um, um, uh, research uh, through phase one, phase two, and phase three type studies. So um, I've been very fortunate to part, be part of a growing um, program here at UBC. The Department of Urologic Sciences is ranked amongst the top three in the world uh, urology departments in terms of its contributions in discovery science. And we do that by partnering with our science colleagues so that we as physicians better understand how experimental science um, is asking fundamental questions of relevance to our patients and how we as clinicians help educate the scientists on the relevance of their model systems or providing them with new model systems to study diseases in the laboratory so that they can be more appropriately um, extrapolated towards the human disease. And that's a, something called translational research, crossing the bench to bedside chiasm or gap, uh, which ultimately is something that large universities are growing um, um, and is a priority at UBC. So again, as a medical student, as you focus on understanding and becoming a physician and the art of being a physician, which is ultimately the, the, the art of applying science to understanding and treating individuals, you know, we also want to uh, grow uh, and retain um, our expertise in science that you get exposed to as an undergraduate science student uh, in, in medicine. So I'll pause there and let you ask other questions anyways. Otherwise, that's an area that I can speak a lot on. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine it must be a very gratifying feeling when you get to actually apply some of the research that you've done in a clinical setting and, and watch patients get better. 
Um, is that something that you really enjoy about what you do? I think that, um, you know, as physicians, you know, we are privileged to be able to look after patients in ways that um, are, are very close. And uh, you have to understand the person as a person, but also the diseases that they have in a way that um, and educate them, provide them with insights into what that illness has uh, from a uh, from implication point of view. So I think we're privileged as physicians to be able to look after patients, help them move through their uh, their illness back towards health, um, or manage the chronicity of their disease uh, for a, a long period of time. Um, so that's, I think, one of the things that attracts me as a physician. Uh, it's incredibly rewarding. But uh, to, as an extra layer on top of that, to be able to um, work upstream, oftentimes 10, 20 years upstream, to see the Sisyphean effort that's involved in moving discovery science back and forth in an iterative way uh, that ultimately helps patients benefit from the discoveries that are made here or through uh, allowing those discoveries more rapid access to our patients here, even if they're discovered elsewhere, um, is particularly gratifying because now our patients in Vancouver, our patients in British Columbia are gaining access to uh, uh, um, discoveries faster um, than uh, if we weren't involved in that process. And that's why it's so important to be players in that process so that we can uh, uh, work towards bringing discoveries, technologies um, um, earlier uh, to manage our patients uh, in a better way. Mm -hmm. And now, was this something that you always knew you wanted to do even back in medical school? Did you know that you wanted to go into urologic surgery or oncology? No, I mean, when I went into university, I was in physical education undergrad now called kinesiology, but when I was going through it, it was physical education. I was an athlete and competed internationally uh, and was interested in perhaps pursuing a, a, a career in physiotherapy or other types of um, sports physiology. Um, but I became exposed to uh, physiology, anatomy, and biology. I was always interested in that and decided uh, to uh, apply for medicine um, after thinking about it in second year. So I really didn't go to university to think about medicine. And when I went into medicine, I was thinking I'd be interested in sports medicine, orthopedics, um, and in fact, worked early on in summers at, at the sports medicine clinic at UBC. Um, and my first publication ever was in the Journal of Sports Medicine. So I, I thought maybe that would be an area that I would get involved in. But as I went further into medical school, um, I became more interested in other things aside from orthopedics or sports medicine, became more interested in medicine and the principles of medicine. Um, but I enjoyed proceduralism. And so I didn't want to go into a, uh, a specialty where I was not doing proceduralism. And... Um, and so I think I got attracted to urology because of all the surgical specialties, it was to me um, 
and, and I didn't appreciate the term at the time, but I like to think of us as cognitive proceduralists. So ultimately, we are physicians who manage our diseases as a physician would, but we're also surgeons who conduct many procedures that are complemented by our understanding of physiology and, and the medicines that we use to manage um, not just oncology, but you know, uh, uh, endocrinology, avoiding dysfunction, uh, stones and metabolism, uh, transplantation and immunology, all the different subspecialties in urology. Uh, so I think as urologists, what attracted to me was that it allows you to be both a physician and a surgeon. And as a proceduralist, you run the gamut of endoscopy, um, laparoscopy, robotic surgery, and complex open surgery. So you do all those as urologists. And, um, uh, and so it, it allows you to uh, gain access and subspecialty training uh, using those various modalities. And then the third thing that attracts me to urology is that you're very, very busy during the day, but in general, call in urology is not like call in many other surgical specialties. So you're, you're, you're able to um, sleep at night for the most part, which is more important later in your career than it is early in your career. But over time, uh, it allows for um, time management. And especially if you're interested in academic medicine as a surgeon, the challenge with academia as a surgeon is that if you're up a lot at night, that you are not, um, you're more challenged, I think, at finding the cognitive capabilities to do what you have to do as an innovator in research if you're chronically fatigued. And so I think as in urology, it allows you to apply all those areas to your patients, uh, medicine and medicinal therapeutics to um, proceduralism across a broad array of technologies, uh, including image-guided interventions. And it allows you to time protect yourself to do other things outside of um, uh, uh, clinical care, uh, the principles of academia, administration, and institutional leadership through to education uh, and teaching through to research in all its broadest ways, whether or not it's epidemiology, through to lab research, through to uh, uh, computational type studies. Um, so that's an environment that we've tried to create here at the Department of Urologic Sciences, where especially at BGH, all of our urologists on staff here are surgeon scientists, people who dedicate part of their time to uh, true research at, at the discovery end of the spectrum. And so in your uh, specialty, is there a lot of patient interaction? Do you spend a lot of time with your patients? No, I, I think, again, one of the things that attracts me to urology is that we manage our patients over a long period of time. Um, unlike other surgical specialties where you do your procedure and the patient gets referred back to the referring physician, for us, we manage our cancers over a long period of time, manage prostate cancer and I have patients in my practice that I've treated for 30 years. 
And over time, you, you know them as a primary care physician would know them, but it's related to your disease per se. Um, and the same things with people with stone disease. We manage those recurring problems. Um, um, we have patients with um, uh, avoiding dysfunction over a long period of time. We manage them with uh, um, various therapeutics or procedures, and they'll be in our practice for five to 10 years as they age, or you know, PSA surveillance type of patients. So I think that we have a... a uh, about 50% of our time is office-based, clinic-based, where we see our patients. Some are new, um, some are discharged back to primary care, but many with urologic diseases that we monitor over a long period of time, uh, we get to know uh, and manage for decades, which again, is it builds that kind of practice where you, you, uh, you see a side of the patients over time uh, that you don't otherwise get to see if you're just treating a patient with a procedure and discharging them again. Great. Yeah. So it sounds like it would be a, a good choice for students who are interested in that relationship building as well, because there's time for that uh, patient interaction. Yeah. And again, as surgeons, there aren't many surgeons that have that kind of longitudinal relationship with their patients. You know, for bladder cancer patients, as an example, the fifth most common cancer and again, for urooncology, we're dealing with prostate cancer, which is the most common cancer in men. Um, bladder cancer, the fourth or fifth overall in men and women. Urinal cells, number 10. Testis cancer, most common in adolescent men. Uh, so we see patients with superficial bladder for 10, 15 years, monitoring them with cystoscopic follow-up, intravesical therapies as one example of of just one disease that's managed over a long period of time. Similarly, prostate cancer, um, decades of follow-up um, uh, with various lines of therapy uh, that ultimately help patients live longer and live better with what used to be a lethal disease has now much more turned into a, a, a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. So you told me a bit about why you liked uh, urology and, and urologic surgery in particular. What is it that drove you towards oncology? What is it about oncology that you enjoy? Yeah, again, I, I enjoy proceduralism and I enjoy biology. And as a surgical oncologist, we're doing uh, uh, major surgeries that are complex, technically challenging. Um, they integrate um, both open laparoscopic and robotic type procedures. We oftentimes image, use image guided biopsies in our office. So we have ultrasounds here. So we start with the entire spectrum. We do the diagnoses with image guided biopsies. We do the counseling of what the diagnosis means. We present therapeutic options. And then if they choose a surgical route, um, uh, we'll do that surgical procedure on them and then monitor over time uh, the entire spectrum of the disease, from diagnosis to treatment, hopefully to cure, if not to recurrence and subsequent second and third line therapies along that spectrum. And that uh, uh, incorporates some of the most complex surgeries uh, in our domain. It incorporates interpretation of biomarkers and imaging that triggers subsequent management of recurrences. And it incorporates um, systemic therapies, whether or not it's uh, uh, 
um, hormonal therapies for prostate cancer, immune therapies, you know, uh, biologic therapies, targeted therapies for renal cell carcinoma. Some of these are in close partnership with medical oncology colleagues, so it's truly multidisciplinary. And so those were the main reasons why I was attracted to oncology per se. It wasn't necessarily at first because of the research domain, um, only subsequently during my fellowship when I was at a place called MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston for a few years, that I became exposed to um, um, laboratory-based research. And um, perhaps some of the greatest advances in precision medicine are made in precision oncology now, where the use of molecular biology and more recently genomics to understand the complexity of heterogeneity, right? How the same type of cancer, you know, that we call prostate cancer or bladder cancer, is actually, you know, scores of different types of cancer at the genomic level, which we're now able to start to segment in individuals. And then use that information, which 10 years ago was very investigational, and now all of a sudden is actually a standard of care in humans. And so the advances that take discovery science into human uh, treatments is perhaps, while very complex in cancer, is a very large enterprise with lots of resources because of the impact that cancer has on our society. And, and so we're able to move that complexity from bench to bedside, perhaps more enabling. It's not easy, but it's enabling in oncology because of the um, multidisciplinary, multi-sector enterprises that come to bear on, on making that happen. Um, so I, I think, you know, the lesson I would give back there to med to medical students is that, you know, you're embarking on a journey that is providing you with a set of skills that is very enabling. And you're going to come to many forks in your road that you just have to choose which fork you find most interesting at that time. And um, essentially, a good training as an MD will open many doors that you take down the road and what path you take will open other roads. But ultimately, training uh, to be as good as you can be, partnering with um, um, synergistic people down the road that ultimately um, makes you more comfortable at the edge of your comfort zone, right? You've got to exist at the edge of your comfort zone in order to continue to grow. And as long as you're able to do that, you incorporate and acquire new skill sets that allow you to um, uh, continue then to interact with others with growing uh, skill sets. And I think what physicians have to continue to be in the future uh, are trained with uh, multi-skill sets, not just medicine, not just a skill set, not applied biology, but acquiring skill sets in computational uh, uh, analysis and data analysis, because that's the future. We're digitalizing biology now at a level that we never could before. And if you can train uh, along whatever sector in medicine that you're interested, whatever um, um, discipline in medicine you're interested in, but acquire 
ability to data analyze, that's going to um, give you uh, a, a set of capabilities to compete in areas that uh, are, are, are going to be um, necessary in the future, and whether or not it's computation at the biologic level, at the um, you know, uh, human health outcomes level, or at an epidemiologic level, you know, that's a skill set that is, that is important. And there are a number like that, whether or not it's technologies in engineering, uh, image uh, uh, guided interventions. It's just acquiring multiple skill sets along your road will not just make you, I think, a better physician, but um, uh, allow you to be more interested in what you do um, as a physician, because it allows you to gain insights into a, a larger world uh, that runs in parallel with, with medicine. So I know that uh, the field of oncology is always developing and, and new things are constantly being discovered. And in terms of urologic surgery, though, do you feel that it also has a lot of that potential for the future? What's your view on what the future of, of your subspecialty looks like? And is there opportunity for new physicians to come in and um, and make discoveries or do other types of work? You know, I mean, the last one's the easiest one to answer because the pace of discovery is accelerating, not slowing. And and twas ever thus, right? I mean, uh, so as long as you have the right skill sets and are in the right environment, uh, and you have the discipline to focus and time manage, then you will contribute to the research enterprise that you choose. Uh, that just requires the right environment, the right training, and the right time management, along with creative. And innovative um, insights. Um, urologic oncology. I mean, where are we? You know, best place, best way to tell sort of where we may be in the future is to look back where we were 30, 40 years ago, and we would do a prostatectomy, a radical prostatectomy. Average blood loss was fifteen hundred to two thousand cc's. Patient was in the hospital for five to seven days. Now we can do that same operation in two hours. Uh, either open or robotically, doesn't matter. There's very little pain. Patient goes home on Advil the next day. Blood transfusions are less than 1%, and they're back to work in you know three, three weeks. So just the ability to uh, do major surgery um, has reduced the morbidity of that surgery. The advances to do that major surgery has reduced the morbidity of that surgery. And because of our understanding of risk stratification, it's allowed us to um, avoid operating unnecessarily on more than 50% of patients who perhaps didn't need that treatment because we understand the biology and the natural history. And it also allows us to operate on people with more aggressive cancers who 30 years ago we would have said we shouldn't have operated on. And yet today we are because we employ multimodal therapy. Uh, surgery plus radiation plus systemic therapies to increase cure rates on what would have been lethal therapies 30 years ago. So understanding uh, the disease, uh, risk stratifying the disease, and, and being better at surgically treating the disease has, has improved outcomes in ways that um, uh, we couldn't have imagined 30 years ago. Um, 
and then a, a layer on top of the molecular analyses, the image-guided analyses, the PET imaging, the MRI imaging, and uh, uh, we're able to, you know, further stratify that heterogeneity in ways that we couldn't have imagined in the past. So um, the tools and the technologies will continue to emerge and um, will continue to evolve the the evolving the evolve the treatment um, paradigms in ways I think I hope in 30 years we'll look back and say boy I can't believe we were doing that back then um, because that's this means we've continued to progress uh, in our understanding of uh, of treating complex diseases so I, I think there will continue to be lots of opportunities in in uh, oncology, uh, broadly speaking, and in various facets of urology. Um, and when I look in other fields uh, that uh, uh, promise disruptive advances, advances uh, regenerative medicine is, is huge, right? So understanding cell-mediated therapeutics, we're in the infancy there. Uh, immune, we're just now harvesting the benefits of research in immunology of 30 years ago. In the last five to 10 years, we've seen disruptive advances in immunotherapeutics of a broad array of solid cancers that research in immunology um, had hoped for uh, 30 years ago. And I think we'll be seeing the same thing with regenerative biology now going forward and and marrying that with, with engineering um, um, uh, disciplines. Um, to, to implement. But suffice to say that if you want an interest in re research as a medical student, what you want to be able to do is to marry that research with your clinical area of focus. And that's the challenge with a physician scientist or a clinician scientist or a surgeon scientist is making sure that you, know, you choose an area of medicine that excites you. Uh, and that excitement can then translate into, you know, innovative interactions with your colleagues across various sectors. And then you have to work in the right environment that uh, that supports you in that role, because we're just individuals, and we uh, the, the complexity of research requires multidisciplinary and cross-sector interactions to uh, make individuals sort of. Uh, move that web forward. So again, as a as a medical student, teamwork, right? Understanding that that you know we thrive in groups and teams, mm -hmm. uh, where the the collective mind, you know, cross pollinates, fertilizes, and ultimately reproduces, as opposed to just duplicates ideas, right? We want to reproduce and, and, and create new thoughts in the future. And that's going to come from, um, from um, a true cross-sector pollination. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, one of those emerging technologies that you mentioned was um, robotic surgery. Can you describe a little bit about how that works and how you use that in your practice? Yeah, I mean, robotic surgery is an extension of laparoscopic surgery. Um, it uh, provides another level of control over laparoscopic surgery um, uh, that a robotics in, in, you know, ultimately uh, introduces. Um, 
there are certain areas that robotics has clearly helped, at least in the urology domain, um, in particular partial nephrectomies or um, uh, certain radical nephrectomies where you reduce the size of a upper abdominal incision or a thoracal abdominal incision that's painful, you know, requires five days in the hospital uh, to one that is more, you know, laparoscopic ports and perhaps two days or three days in the hospital and a shorter time to full recovery. So that's um, been disruptive. Um, a lot of the advances in robotics in pelvic surgery, in particular prostatectomies, are market force driven, um, where the robot was used as a marketing tool in American institutions to attract patients there. In some ways may have shortened the learning curve to do a complex radical prostatectomy, but um, in many ways, I characterize as a pseudo-innovation. It didn't move the yardstick that much compared to a good open. And all the trials would say that a good open is as good as a robot, a prostatectomy. But um, there's a lot of marketing behind it, a lot of public awareness that they read on the web and they're told that this is better and it looks more technologically advanced. But that's where you know we have to look at the data as clinicians and decide whether or not it's a true advance or is it a pseudo advance. Um, it's certainly more expensive. It's twice as twice the cost of a open prostate, but um, its attractiveness has still led to its penetration into our domain. Uh, and and I think its main advantage is that it shortens the learning curve of a of a complex prostatectomy, as an example. And also, when you look 30 to 40 years down the road, there'll be other technologies that will layer on the digital interface from an optical imaging point of view that will enable things like augmented reality, uh, uh, augmented, um, yeah, augmented reality, a reality from an imaging point of view that will further uh, evolve it beyond what open surgery can do. So um, while I criticize the way it has been introduced, when you look into the future, um, it does a, a, a allow for a, um, a platform that will interface with other types of image guided interactions where you can give a therapeutic and it will highlight under fluorescence the nerve bundle beside the prostate or blood vessels in ways that uh, will help the surgeon uh, better dissect at, at the microscopic level uh, the, uh, the important anatomic features away from the prostate. So, so I, th I think the robot's exciting um, uh, from that perspective. Um, but it's, it's, it's a procedural advance, right? So in that perspective, you know, it's not as significant as I think, you know, understanding the biology of the disease, introducing biomarkers that segment populations. Um, it just allows you to, you know, uh, do something a little bit better. So at best, it's an incremental advance in, in, in that domain. Um, having said that, there are other areas, head and neck surgery, or maybe more, more uh, beneficial uh, uh, compared to open surgery. So it, my, my critique of its role as a prostatectomy tool um, is specific to that. It has helped 
in other domains. Um, again, this is where data has to support our our biases and um, um, in areas of cervical cancer, randomized trials published in the New England Journal would say that an open hysterectomy actually outperformed from a cancer control point of view, a robotic hysterectomy. So um, you, we have to continue to evolve our biases based upon uh, new high level evidence. Um, um, and that's how medicine creeps along from an advanced point of view. Subject your bias to an appropriate controlled study to, uh, to make sure we're not fooling ourselves into thinking that something is better just because it seems to be better. So you're not worried about being replaced by a robot anytime soon? No, the robot's not doing the surgery. You know, the robot is a tool that is manipulated by a surgeon. Okay, so that, you know, to think that a robot will replace complex surgery anytime soon is still in the realm of science fiction. And yes, AI is being, we, the Prostate Center, we do a lot of AI research, especially in the area of computer augmented drug design. And, uh, and their machine learning or AI is a tool that's helping us accelerate uh, the uh, investigation, interrogation of large data sets or complex data sets. Mach uh, whether or not you can apply machine learning to a tool, which is what a robot is, doing surgery will rely on good anatomy, right? And it's the same way where AI in self-driving cars only works either when everybody else's AI every other car is AI driven or you rely on certain lanes to allow certain vehicles to drive. But the moment you move into construction zones or unexpected problems, that's where AI will fail. And for the most part, complex anatomy resulting from pathology is not going to be well sorted by AI for the foreseeable future. Right? I mean, that, that's just, so no, me as a surgeon, I'm not in any way worried about being displaced by AI. Pathology, digital imaging and interrogation, radiology, those are areas where certain throughputs of normalcy will be vetted by AI in the near future. Um, but it's going to require an experienced human interface to look at uh, other borderline issues down the road for the foreseeable future. So um, those are areas or domains I'd be more worried about being displaced by machine learning algorithms as they make their way into clinical practice. Mm -hmm. Now, one other thing that you also touched on a little bit was sort of the, um, I guess, the work-life balance, um, where you talked about how you have some more time to sleep uh, because the call is not as intense. How do you find the the work life balance in your in your specialty? Is there room for hobbies? Is there room for family, or are you very sort of focused on your work? Well, again, one of the advantages of the urology in general is that it is considered a quote unquote you know lifestyle surgical specialty. And as I mentioned earlier, you know we are able to um, work hard during the day, book a lot of elective cases, but we don't have a lot of urologic emergencies that would bring us in to emergency rooms while on call. 
There are exceptions to this in some areas, stone disease, so renal colic, testicular torsion would be some examples. But again, you know, going into urology, and, and this is important, is that you know, as, a, as a medical student going forward, I don't look on my job as work. What I do as a urologist is my career. It includes clinical practice, it includes education, and it includes research. But as a career, it's something that I integrate into my life. I don't try to segment it out of my life. And as such, I'm, I don't feel like I, 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 I don't feel like I strive for balance, which I think is the wrong goal. I'm just more comfortable being in and out of balance. So you have to I mean, be comfortable with being somewhat out of balance. And as long as you're comfortable with that, then you don't fret so much about the, the pursuit of balance. Having said that, um, you know, I have a lot of uh, other interests. I have a cottage on a lake on, on the ocean. I have a boat that I spend time on. I play tennis still. Uh, I, and the other aspects of it is that I, uh, as a, as a surgeon scientist, I'm privileged to be able to travel around the world and um, meet people like me in other areas of translational science, clinician science, that um, um, uh, practice in different health systems, different cultures, different languages. And so I'm able to gain insights into medicine through that, that perspective. Um, and I have close friends and colleagues and all over the world um, that ultimately enhances my life, my quality of life, because I gain insights from a travel point of view uh, and from a cultural point of view uh, that, uh, that that kind of advantage affords me. Um, but I would also, I think, want to stress it as you know, future doctors and medical students have to learn several things to help with the work-life balance. And that is learning time management and taking courses early on. How do you best manage your time? And the other aspect is, and it's linked to time management, is how do you best lever your time? And that in involves building an infrastructure around you. And that infrastructure is important for supporting you as a leader or as a educator, uh, as a entrepreneur uh, um, going forward, um, building um, an infrastructure and people who support you, who partner with you in a true team framework uh, and in attracting the revenue through various sources to uh, feed that infrastructure and grow that infrastructure over time. And, and as such, think about that as, as an enterprise that a business entrepreneur would want to grow going forward, um, where you're growing your vision and your capability without having to uh, uh, do all the invisible infrastructure support that that requires. And that's, uh, that's all part of growing your capability, uh, outsourcing the things that you don't want to do, um, and buying you the time to focus on the things that you like to do. Uh, and that ultimately helps you grow as a physician, uh, as a 
surgeon, as an educator, as a scientist, as a medical leader, whatever you want to focus on uh, from a career point of view. Um, and uh, so that's, I think, perhaps one of my take-home messages to medical students looking to choose what they want to do in the future. That's, that's a path that all of us have to choose. I wouldn't fret too much about that. That will come to you over time. But grow uh, your capabilities in time management and partnership uh, to grow your capabilities uh, over time. Fantastic. Well, you know, speaking of time, I don't want to take up uh, any more of yours, Dr. Gleave, but I do want to thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Your insights were fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. For more episodes of Metamorphosis, look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the entire Metamorphosis team, we hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network.